Think with me about your calendar. What events are coming up for you in the next month? Today is October 31st. Tomorrow is November 1st. So what's coming up for you in the month of November? Maybe there's a family holiday or a family birthday, I mean. Becky's birthday is coming up this Saturday, November 6th. Maybe there's a birthday in the family this month. Maybe there's a trip planned. Maybe a doctor's appointment. Maybe there's a paper due for school or a project due for work. Maybe you have something planned for Thanksgiving or for Black Friday. Those future events on our calendars impact how we live today. As one example, think with me about Thanksgiving. As the holiday gets closer, we plan and prepare. We communicate with family and friends. We go to the store and buy our turkey. The holiday is coming up, and it impacts how we live days and weeks in advance, maybe even months. But not always, right? Sometimes we procrastinate instead of planning ahead. The day before Thanksgiving, we're scrambling to finalize plans, and we have to visit five grocery stores to find a jar of cranberry sauce or pumpkin puree. We just can't find it in the stores. We all have upcoming events on our calendars. Things are coming up. The question is this. What should we, do, what should we be doing about those things now, today? In this passage, Peter reminds us that there's an upcoming event that's synced on all of our calendars. It's on all of our calendars. It's not a holiday or a birthday or a deadline or an anniversary. No, it's the coming day of God. Peter has already said many things about this day. If you've been here through the series, you know he's said many things about this day. But now... Now Peter tells us what to do about it. He said many things. Now he tells us, Christian, here's what you must do. So as we turn to this passage, notice how verse 11 begins. Since. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Now the word dissolved actually shows up three times in three verses. Verse 10, the heavenly bodies will be dissolved. Verse 11, all these things are thus to be dissolved. Verse 12, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Now what comes to your mind when you hear the word dissolved? What comes to my mind are those vitamin C tablets that you drop in a glass of water. They bubble and sputter and hiss, and in about a minute they're dissolved. We're out of the cell, so. Exactly. Yes, yes. That's what comes to my mind. Maybe that image is helpful as you think about what Peter is saying. In this case, what's dissolved is much more than a vitamin C tablet. Notice what Peter says. He says, all things. Let that, think, let that sink in for a moment. A day is coming when all things will be dissolved. All things. We have young kids. I think about how their toys and blankies will be dissolved. 
I help with the youth at proclamation. A day is coming when their cell phones and their prized clothes will be dissolved. A day is coming when our diplomas and IRAs and homes will be no more. A day is coming when all things will be dissolved like a vitamin C tablet dropped in a glass of water. What sort of people ought we to be? Since all things are to be dissolved, should we do what we want to do? Should we be who we want to be? What sort of people ought we to be? Peter tells us. Verse 11, once again. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What sort of people ought we to be? It's really not a question to deliberate. It's a command to obey. Peter's point is this. Live lives of holiness and godliness. Christians, beloved, live lives of holiness and godliness. Since all things are thus to be dissolved, then we must be holy. And we must be godly. First, we ought to be holy. In 1 Peter, so we're in 2 Peter, in 1 Peter, the apostle writes this about holiness. Maybe you remember when he said, As he who called you is holy, so be holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God is set apart, and we should mirror or reflect his set-apartness. God chose us and set us apart that we might belong, not in part, but in whole, entirely to him. As we think about holiness, I think this quote by D.L. Moody, the 19th century evangelist, I think this quote by D.L. Moody gets at holiness. Moody once said or wrote, The place for the ship is the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets into it. The place for the ship is the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets into it. Now apply that to the church. Apply that to the Christian. The place for the church is the world. But God help the church if the world gets into it. Holiness. Set-apartness. People should watch our lives and know that we do not belong to this world. Our children and grandchildren and parents and friends and neighbors, all of them should watch us and know that we are different. We are set-apart. We are holy. So that's the first thing that Peter says. We ought to be holy. Second, we ought to be godly. We ought to be like God. Loving what he loves. Hating what he hates. Think of it this way. Whenever the Bible says God is blank. God is something Our desire is for that to be true of us. In not every circumstance. Some things can't be true of us. But those character qualities. For example, earlier in verse 9, I preached on this last time. In verse 9, we find one of these God is statements. Peter writes, The Lord is patient. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, 
What is it like to be like God? What, is it, what does it mean to be godly? Well, it means to be patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the patient, evangelistic heart of God should beat in each one of us. I want it to be said of me. You want it to be said of you that you are patient like God. Godly. What sort of people ought we to be? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, we ought to be holy and we ought to be godly. But can we be more specific? What does this holiness and godliness look like in action? How or in what way are we to be holy and godly? Once again, Peter tells us. Let me read verse 12 again. Peter writes, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So first, Peter tells us it's a holiness and godliness that's waiting. It's an expectant, hopeful, looking forward kind of life. It's a life that has one eye longingly fixed on the future when Christ returns. And it's, it's a holiness, it's a godliness that's on its toes, on the edge of its seat. We expectantly wait for this coming day of God. But that's not all. Peter says it's a holiness and godliness that hastens the day of God. Let me say that again. It's a holiness and godliness that hastens the day of God. What is Peter saying that our holiness and godliness can make that future day come more quickly? Yes, he is at least from our perspective. Remember something from the previous passage. I'll explain this. Remember something from the previous passage. From our perspective, it seems like God is delaying Christ's return. It seems from our perspective like the day is not coming and God is delaying. He's, from our perspective, delaying that final day because he wishes that all should reach repentance. The day is not coming so that more and more people can repent. So what happens as people repent and as they live lives of holiness and godliness? Well, Peter says from a human standpoint, from our perspective, we hurry up the return of Christ. Okay, let's think about this some more. Peter's not pulling this idea out of thin air. He's not making this up. He's alluding to Isaiah 60, verse 22, which we read earlier in our call to worship. Maybe I'll read that last verse again. Verse 22 from Isaiah 60. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. It's referring to this coming day of God. So Peter is alluding to that passage, and think about this with me. We implicitly affirm this truth, this idea of hastening 
the coming day of God. We implicitly affirm this, time, this truth every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. And what do I mean by that? Well, look with me in your, in your worship guide to the Reflections. That's page two. Look, look with me at the first one. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question answer 102. The question is this. What do we pray for in the second petition? Referring to the Lord's Prayer. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Maybe you know your shorter catechism, and that hasn't stood out before. That the kingdom of glory may be hastened. So there's a sense in which we can hurry up. We can hasten the return of Christ. Wow. Think about that. This is one of those truths that we affirm, but we can't comprehend. We affirm it, we can't comprehend it. Once again, we're bumping up against Christian biblical mystery. It's a mystery. So we affirm both truths, that God decrees all things, he sovereignly decrees all things, and yet at the same time, we're not robots. We are fully responsible for what we do and don't do. So we affirm both these truths and go no further. Somehow, we can hasten the return of Christ. So we affirm these truths, and what we do do, even if we can't comprehend this, what we do do is we strive for holiness, and we strive for godliness. Because when we do so, we hasten the day. Wow. Before we move on to verse 13, let me make two observations. Two observations. First, Peter is not advocating here some kind of works righteousness. Works righteousness says, I'm righteous in God's sight because of what I do. You could read verse 11, especially if you drop into this passage, not reading the context. You could drop in here where Peter says, lives of holiness and godliness, and mistakenly think that Peter is saying, your holiness and godliness is what welcomes you into the kingdom. It's what makes you righteous in God's sight. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Read this verse in the context of the letter. Read this verse in the context of all of Scripture. The Bible is very clear about how we are justified. Justification is an act of God's free grace in which God pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for, not our righteousness, but for the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When we repent of our sins, and when we put our faith in Christ, we are justified. We are declared righteous in God's sight because of the righteousness of our Savior. And I emphasize that point because some of us need to hear that reminder often. Some of us need to hear that reminder Many times. For some of us, that is our struggle. Believing somehow that our righteousness is what, war- is what 
merits or warrants a smile on the face of God. But it's not. Some of us need that reminder. We are declared righteous in God's sight by faith in the righteous one, Jesus Christ. With that said, what Peter is saying is this. What God has done in Christ must never be separated from what we must now do. What God has done in Christ must never be separated from what we must now do. You may have heard it said like this. Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Or as one of my seminary professors writes, and listen to this, he writes, there is no salvation without accompanying discipleship. There is no salvation without accompanying discipleship or following Jesus. There is no salvation without that accompanying obedience, that following. In Peter's words, beloved, what sort of people ought we to be? Ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We need to hear the force of the ought in this verse. That's Peter's point. As sinners saved by grace, we ought to be holy. And we ought to be godly. That's my first observation. This is not, verse 11 is not works righteousness. It's the call of the gospel. It's the call of the gospel. My second observation is this. Do you see the close link in Peter's mind between ethics and eschatology? I'll explain this. But do you see the clear link in Peter's mind between ethics and eschatology? How we live, our ethics, is linked to what we believe about the future. Our eschatology. Peter says, and and follow his logic, follow his reasoning, since the day of God is coming, live this way. Live a life of holiness and godliness. Wait for the day of God. Hasten its coming. In other words, Peter tells us about the future so that we can be better Christians today. That's his point. He's telling us about the future. Why? So that we can be better Christians today, tomorrow, this week. One commentator puts it very simply. He says, Christian ethics are rooted within eschatology. Christian ethics are rooted within eschatology. Christian ethics are rooted. Think of yourself like a tree. And what you believe about the future are your roots. Your roots, your beliefs about the future will bear fruit. It will bear fruit. It will travel through the, through the trunk and into the leaves and into the fruit. Your eschatology, what you believe about the future, will bear fruit. And the question is this. To what extent? To what extent is it the fruit of holiness and godliness? That's the question. The biblical view seems to be like this. I remember hearing this from someone, and I don't know who, But the biblical view seems to be like this. Have one eye on the future and another eye on the present. One eye on the future, another eye on the present. If that's the biblical view, 
then I think one of our main temptations, one of our primary temptations, is to take that one eye off the future and fix that one as well on the present. Our temptation is to functionally believe each day, each week, that this world is all there is. That functional, everyday eschatology will bear bad fruit. We will live unholy and ungodly lives. So Peter's point, once again, live for the coming day. Live for the coming day. Live lives of holiness and godliness. We're not only motivated by the future dissolving of all things, we're also motivated by something else. We're motivated, as Peter says here, by the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. Let's read verse 13 once again. Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Once again, Peter is alluding here to the Old Testament. The language of new heavens and a a new earth is found in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. In fact, in Scripture, only four passages speak specifically of new heavens and a new earth. That theology is found elsewhere. But specifically, new heavens and new earth, how many passages speak of it? Four. And 2 Peter 3.13 is one of those four. Now, typically we have question and answer times after the sermons, and as usual, a great question was asked after one of the previous sermons, and the question was this, in what sense will the new heavens and new earth be new? In what sense will they be new? To what extent will they be new? I'm not sure who asked that question, but it's a good one, and I think now is the time to answer it. When we read 2 Peter, it sounds like the new heavens and the new earth will be brand new. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like the old will be destroyed, annihilated, incinerated forever. It sounds like, as you're comparing old and new, it sounds like there's absolute discontinuity. There's nothing the same. Old is gone forever and completely. New is brand new. But 2 Peter is not all that we have that speaks to this subject. When we read other passages like Romans 8, we read this. The creation itself will be set free. And not only the creation, but we ourselves grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So passages like this one in Romans make it sound like the old will be renewed or transformed, or liberated, restored. It sounds more like genuine continuity between the old and the new. So which is it? Which is it? Discontinuity? An abrupt, absolute break? Or continuity? Will the, will the old be absolutely destroyed or genuinely renewed? 
And the biblical answer seems to be, it's both. It's both. Only in the new world, though, there won't be any more sin, no more war, no more, no more adultery, no more, no more uh, getting into trouble. Exactly, and that's and where we're going. Like it's the place where righteousness dwells. Yes, yeah, so keep listening. That's a great point. So, as you think about this, that's good, Jimmy. That's where Peter goes, and that's where we're going. But as you think about this, think about the relationship between your present body and your resurrected body. Your present body and your resurrected body. Obviously, we don't know what the resurrected body will be like. Or we have Christ to, to consider, but we don't know what that will be like for us. But when Christ returns and when your body is resurrected, it will still be you. It will still be you. But your resurrected body will be so different than your body now. That can be a helpful analogy. In a similar way, the old and the new heavens and earth will be the same, but different. Just like our resurrected bodies will be the same, but different. Creation itself will undergo something like a death and resurrection. The earth will still be the earth, but it will be renewed, liberated, restored. We will spend eternity on this earth, but this earth will be new. It won't be. It'll be the same, but different, very different. So, Maybe the vitamin C tablet in a glass of water isn't the best analogy after all. It's like dropping a vitamin C tablet in a glass of water and it bubbles and sputters and hisses for a minute and then you have an even more perfect vitamin C tablet sitting in your water. How do we understand this? How do we understand the relationship between the old and the new? This is what scripture teaches. There are things that we won't understand now. But what we can understand now is this. As our brother Jimmy was pointing out, this new heavens and new earth will be where righteousness dwells. It will be the home of righteousness. What does that mean? It means many things. It means that there will be no more enemies. Satan and his fallen angels will be cast into hell forever. There will no, they will no longer be able to accuse, to spiritually blind, to deceive, to tempt. There will no longer be spiritual warfare. There will no longer be the need for armor of God. No more false prophets, false teachers, or wolves in sheep's clothing. There will be no enemies where righteousness dwells. Wow. It means that there will be no more death. No more hospice or obituaries or funeral services. No more cemeteries and tombstones and graveside services. No more tears and tissues and empty seats and grieving hearts. No more police and burn for Yes, exactly. No more lawyers. No more doctors. No more pastors. There will be no death where righteousness dwells. It means that there will be no more suffering, no more pain, injuries, diagnoses, 
mental illnesses, no more handicaps, cancer, medicine, surgeries, appointments, no more aging, loss, trauma, no more accidents, no more catastrophes or natural disasters or breaking news. There will be no suffering where righteousness dwells. And it means that there will be no more sin. No more hate, abortion, laziness, no more greed, racism, or selfishness. No more betrayals and broken trust and injustice and evil and pride. No more lust, pornography, adultery, jealousy. No more illicit sexual desire of any kind whatsoever. We will never again sin, and we will never again be sinned against. Think of it. Think of it. We will never again sin, and never again be sinned against. One theologian says, we will be consummately declared and made righteous. God's people will be consummately declared and made righteousness. There will be no sin where righteousness dwells. Did we ever do anything to deserve this? Did we ever do anything to deserve this? No, but isn't that the very point of the gospel that we cherish, that we love so much? Everything that we have received or ever will receive is a gift from God. It's a pure gift. Two pastors in our day say it really well. They say, when when eternity finally comes, we will live in a land that was made and created for us, under a kingdom that was won and established for us by a Savior who died and was resurrected for us. Put simply, the gospel is the good news of salvation in all of its parts that is for us and not in the least by us. We will dwell where righteousness dwells because of God's grace. In a previous sermon, I read from Little Pilgrim's Progress. It's by Helen Taylor, based off of John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress. When I read from that section a few sermons ago, I started at the beginning, where Little Christian is living. The context is he's living in the city of destruction, but he hears of the celestial city. So here's how the book ends where that part ends as his pilgrimage ends. When Christian and his friend Hopeful passed through the gateway, the gateway of the city, they found a great company waiting to receive them with sweet music and songs of welcome. Everyone looked glad and happy, for there was no sorrow in the celestial city and no weariness and no pain. At first, the children's eyes were dazzled by the golden light that shone around them. But by degrees, they grew accustomed to it and were able to look up. Before them, in the middle of the city, rose a very stately palace. Does the king live there? Whispered Christian 
uh, to someone standing by him? Yes. And when you have knelt before him and seen his glory, you will be perfectly happy forever. The little pilgrims had now reached the threshold of the palace. And as the doors were thrown open, they heard the sound of the very sweetest music. The prince himself was waiting to receive them. And he smiled upon them and took their hands in his own. Then he led them into the palace. And the whole city was filled with joy because their pilgrimage was over. And they had been brought safely through the dark river of death into the presence of their king. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? The day is coming when our beautiful king will usher in his, in his everlasting kingdom of righteousness. May we live for that day and long to behold our king. Amen.